everybody, welcome into Show Notes. Sitting here with 99, hanging in the studio. It's a uh, it's an okay day out there here in New York. It was a little cloudy this morning, but uh, I think we're feeling... It fine. would soon get very cloudy indeed. Almost apocalyptic. Canadian fires would leave our intrepid podcasters surrounded by a stifling haze. The next few days would test Max and 99. But not many faces. He was safe, in the sunny, sweet air of Atlanta. All right. <laughs> that's good. Uh, you had a road trip this weekend? I had a plane trip. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. How was it? It was good. Yeah? Uh, nice Lots to of family. see 101 and 99's mom, third person. Uh, you know, vegan food, craft beer, hugging mm. the dog. That's a good weekend. Yeah. Cool. The weather was kind of weird. It was supposed to be like in the 90s, but then it was in the 60s, so... <laughs> What I packed was a little off. Yeah, I imagine. But it was, it was, that was the only hiccup. Okay. How was travel getting back yesterday? It was fine. Easy peasy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. How about you? How about me? I don't know. You're wearing dark jeans today. I've never seen you wear dark jeans in my life. They're not the most comfortable jeans. Why are you wearing them? Mm, my other ones walked into the laundry by themselves. Mm, yeah. Those look boot cut. These? Yeah. They're like, are like a little too flare. Are they? I think so. They're probably from the 90s. Yeah. They're, yeah. That's a very wide leg for you. They yeah. look a little like baby Jinkos. Well, I have a I have a pair of jeans. A pair. And then I have these. Okay. For when the other ones walk themselves into the laundry. Do I need to take you jean shopping, sir? Um, yeah. I. Well, I have... I'm a difficult fit because... Um, got, you got booty? I got a little bit of booty. And, and when I gain weight, I gain weight like a Botticelli. So I'm just like a, like a, just a, a sumptuous pear. It's beautiful. Makes it, makes it a little difficult for jean shopping. So, well, you maybe you should try the, like, women's jeans. Cuts and maybe I should just wear some mom jeans. Fuck it. I mean, women's jeans are f- cut for butts. That should be their slogan. Mm. Cut for butts. <laughs> Pretty good. Thank you. Yeah. It's like almost like I work in that industry or something. Almost. Yeah. It's like I market this show to people. Almost. Sort of. Almost like it. Interesting. Yeah. I'm the Don Draper of podcasting. I cheat on my wife. (laughs) I drink on the job. (laughs) And I have a secret identity. My name is Dick Whitman. It's not a secret anymore. You pulled Dick Whitman out. That's really good. (laughs) I don't think I could have pulled that out right away. Mm. Wow. Well done. Thanks. I'm a Peggy gal, even though fucking, oh, you know, I, I know, can't talk I about know. it. But that the scene of her at the dude. end with the box and the cigarette in her mouth and she's like, fuck all these men. And I'm like, yeah, Peggy, fucking tell them. Yeah. But I might really be a Joan. I'm like a bitch. And I'm like, get out of my way. <laughs> I run this town. Dan Holt. So his partner, Roger Sterling, right? The silver hair guy, right? Mm-hmm. Outstanding actor. Went on to do a bunch of stuff. I mean, that wasn't like his first... Like foray. Was he around? Yeah, he was in one episode of Sex and the City where he wanted to golden shower. I mm. think Carrie. Mm. John Slattery, that's his John name. John Slattery. It took yeah. me a second. What a great show. We we left it uh, a few seasons in. Was it we one just, day ran over the toe with the John Deere? It's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life. I don't think I saw that scene, so I think I was out already. They're all like they got a new client they're all like drinking in the office and celebrating and they had like a little tractor lawnmower you know one of the the, I don't know it was like the go-kart size 
and it's a lawnmower, so they've ran over someone's foot. And it just blood splattered everywhere. There were a few moments like that in Mad Men that were like unnecessarily gory. Like when Feldman. I think I was out right after or around the hanging. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lane? Poor Lane. Yeah. That's uh, Richard Harris's son. What, Jeremy? I don't remember what his first name is. Also a really great actor. Mm-hmm. He was in uh, one of the Sherlock Holmes, too, and he played a bad guy, and he was like and a, like a physical bad guy, and he was um, like strangely convincing at it. I'm oh, like, yeah. Why is this guy so badass? Yeah, give him some stubble and like gray hair. I, I believe it. Yeah. But uh, no, Ben Feldman is the actor. I can't remember his character's name, but he cut off his nipple and gave it to Peggy in a box. You hear that? In real life? No. <laughs> that happened later in the... So the show got weird. Do you hear this me. 1950s phone ringing, yeah, though? I do. I do. Is it the shoe phone? 99. It's Control. They're like, stop talking about Mad Men. That's a different show. <laughs> yeah, that's really weird. It's done. Maybe we're in a time machine. I was in here. Hot studio time machine. Yesterday recording. And uh, my man next door was just... Go- he was... Yammering bananas on about a certain deal or something, and it just went on. And I finally stopped the recording, and I just came back last night and finished up. But he was out of control. We got to get out of here. You should invite him on the show. Yeah, phone a friend. Talk all about mortgages, bro. Anyway, hey, do us a favor if you haven't already. Make sure you go to the YouTube's and subscribe, and then go watch every single video ten times and like each one of them and leave a comment. Also. We need some pod reviews. So if you could get on that, that would be really great. And uh, you can now tip us on YouTube. That's new. So all you have to do is hit the thanks button below with the little dollar sign in it. You can give us money there. And um, while we're talking about YouTube, and we might also, by this time, by the time you hear this, maybe you'll also see a topical cream on it as well. Uh, We have a new drop on Cornell West's announcement that he's running for president. So that's what I was uh, writing and recording last night. I uh, love Cornell West. He is, um, uh, I mean, he's he's a national treasure. He's one of our still- Was he in great. national treasure? And he's in national treasure. Which, the one or two? Two. Yeah, what part? The middle. Okay. So- well, like, Was he like Helen Mirren's associate? Yes, that's okay. the guy. Right, of course. So now you, rem- you can place him. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, he's running for president on the People's Party platform, which is not great for a number of reasons. Why? Not really sure. Uh, So one of the things I did not include in that, and maybe we'll get some feedback on it. uh, We actually have a couple pieces of feedback already from YouTube, but uh, when we drop the pod, maybe we'll get some feedback on it. Uh, one of the things that I did not include, because I wasn't able to really substantiate this, is I know that the, the People's Party is somewhat problematic to some people, and uh, the founder of it may also be problematic for different reasons than what I outlined in the show. So uh, I just took a very straightforward analysis from a political perspective, but it's really interesting because it kind of challenges a lot of the assumptions that I've laid out with the professional political class theory, with with talking about whether or not there's uh, viability for third parties and all that kind of stuff. So that's the route that I took, but apparently there's a lot of stuff about Nick Branna, who's the founder of it, who's a former Bernie staffer and outreach coordinator mm-hmm. uh, from 2016, allegations that that arose. But again, I can't substantiate any of it. I don't know how much of it is just chatter and how much of it is actually real because I didn't find any articles from credible sources specifically written about it. So. I don't want to lean into that. I think there's enough meat on the bone to go after just the 
what I believe to be a serious miscalculation on Dr. West's part about aligning with the People's Party for a number of different reasons. So anyway. in fairness, yeah. the founders of all our political parties are problematic. <laughs> so it sort of just levels That's it out. That's really fair. You know? That's really fair. He would actually I don't know anything about the founder of the Green Party though. I'm sure or they're working families. I bet I could find something. <laughs> hopefully that hopefully working families isn't problematic. I know. I know. But you know, all the major yeah. ones. Yeah. The big so ones. he just wanted to be like it's like the boys' club. Yeah. He had to do something bad. To get in. Say I did something bad. I guess it wasn't Why bad enough so because they're good. only on the ballot in one state. It's Taylor Swift. So who? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Uh I've heard of her. Yeah. I've heard of her. She's yeah. not as big as Michael Jackson, but I've heard of her. No, but she, you know, yeah. she's being written about as much. Mm. As people are obsessed with her. Mm. Obsessed with her. Obsessed with her and everything she does. Yeah. And somehow It's the price of fame. Not mad at people she associates with more than her. Yeah, I'm not following any of it. Nor do I give a shit. But wow. I do know that she's very talented. And that's that's where I draw the line with her. Leave her alone. I mean... Leave Taylor alone. She's not... Uh, she can be criticized. I just think okay. we should also criticize the people being bad. You know? It's like if I got dragged for your problems. Like if you were problematic and they were like, fuck 99. Like she shouldn't associate with him. Rather than being like, fuck Max for saying that. Right. That's what I feel like was happening. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know what? Fuck Max anyway. You know, just let's get ahead of it. You know, it's probably a good idea. You never know what's going to surface. It's because of the jeans. This is your tan suit. Yeah. you. M- <laughs> Silence your slack. I know. How are you so bad at this? You've been doing it for legit three years. I'm bad at a lot of stuff, 99. No. There you go. You're just sad today. I'm tired. I'm always tired, though. Don't want to use it as an excuse, but I do want to get into headlines. And so here we go. I've got... Four. I had three. Now I have four. Just added a fourth. The first one is to is an easy one. Everybody take a listen to the most recent best of the left. There's a curious thing. And I was actually talking about this with my wife the other day about how there's there's all these articles coming up about children being forced into labor, mainly because I have no problem if you force my children into labor. Um, also, Sarcasm. that's a joke. But there was a horrific story about children in a meatpacking plant that uh, were working. And, and there was an investigative reporter that just sort of figured it out by being in the classroom and then and hearing things and then doing like a real job, going to investigate the claims and then figuring out that these children were actually working overnights in very dangerous conditions. Talking about the jungle? That, which is, here we are, all the way back. Didn't you, did you say meat plant? Did you yeah, say that? I did, meat I packing thought, plant. W- this is this literally is the jungle. Literally, yeah. With children, I mean, it's 2023. But that's where we are. It's 2023. They should be CEOs. And you have Republicans actually trying to create legislation to allow for this to happen under the guise that there's a labor shortage. And of course, under the guise of parental rights, everything comes down to states rights, parental rights, individual rights. They want a just a just a free for all purge like society where anybody can do whatever they want and they don't want any constraints on anybody. So interesting. Why not? Let's try it. Oh, no, we did that. That's right. It was the 1800s. Lots of people died. So Best of the Left puts together, uh, as usual, clips from various sources investigating the rise of child labor under the auspices of parental freedom and labor shortages and uh, and how these ideas were just either fabricated or being used uh, to, you know, to cover for their larger agenda, which is basically just to strip away any protections and uh, to have any oversight or regulations over labor practices in this country. Yay. That is episode 1563. Check it out if you get a chance. 
another uh, important thing, uh, it's, a, it's a short article, but it I, I like the fact that it, it focuses on the legislative count, the number of attempts to pass anti-transgender legislation and anti-LGBTQ legislation throughout the country. So there's an article in Mother Jones that tracks that that legislators in every state have introduced over 550 anti-transgender bills more than in the past eight years combined. So this is just in just in the last year. And nearly 30 of them have been introduced in Congress. And the onslaught includes limits on healthcare access, removing LGBTQ plus materials from schools, banning trans athletes from sports teams. And 72 of these are now law. So we've reached a critical point where now this is getting through the state legislatures. This is more than just model bills being circulated. This is more than just culture wars being played out through the media, all of which is dangerous enough. Now it's actually becoming legislation and it's working its way through. It's only a matter of time before we're going to see, you know, measures like this passed at the congressional level if we lose control of the House and the Senate down the road. Just more reason to just stay active, get out the vote and stay involved because it's such a, it's just, just, just an unbelievably dangerous time to be, you know, queer in this country. It's awful. The human rights campaign declared a national state of emergency today for LGBTQ today. plus people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, there are no words. How, why, why doesn't, why people care? <laughs> yeah. Why are people, why are people so mean? It does beg it's the question. It's not even like, why are mean. You so mean. It's like it's insidious. It's honestly, I think it's evil. It's mean is too tame. This is these, these are evil bills. Yeah. I don't care. <sighs> Just stop trying to spread stop your beliefs to other people. How about that? Let people live their truths and their authentic lives and be who they want to be. And just shut the fuck up. It's so frustrating. And it's so frustrating that there is so little we can do other than, you know, vote. I wish I could do more. Mm. I mean, I know I could protest and like, I wish there was something I could do outside of the normal means to get it across. But yeah, but it's the one thing that we can all do. It's the one baseline measure that we all have the ability to participate in. And that is to make sure that you're voting on the right side of history. Very, very sad. You know, since we're talking about socialism, by the way, on the pod and uh, in the middle of this series or in the beginning of this series, uh, I want to read to you the preface for an upcoming book or just a piece from the preface of an upcoming book on Leon Trotsky or Leon Trotsky. So this is from David North and North is the chairman of the International Editorial Board for the World Socialist website and the national chairman of the Socialist Equity Party. Uh, so this is just a little bit. Despite the many years that separate the first and last document, they are connected by a central argument. So we're talking about uh, going through the, the, the lifetime of papers uh, from Trotsky. Trotsky was the most significant figure in the history of socialism during the first four decades of the 20th century, and his legacy remains the critical and indispensable theoretical and political foundation of the ongoing contemporary struggle for the victory of world socialism. So left a link to uh, the article that has the uh, entire excerpt from uh, the introduction of the book. So check it out if you get a chance, if you're interested in it. It also helps us set the table uh, as we move through as we move through the Russian Revolution, which obviously brings Trotsky, you know, front and center. And um, he's he's really a, I find him to be one of the more or if not most fascinating figures from that period because he had a turn. He did have his own violent turn 
at some point. But, you know, seeing these brilliant minds try to formulate socialism in an area of the world that they knew it wasn't prepared. And that's where he and Lenin kind of diverged. Obviously, uh, Stalin wound up uh, sending somebody to assassinate Trotsky later, you know, when he was uh, on the run down in South America. But he, he really has a fascinating legacy. And I would say that his vision of a socialist state taking root in Russia, then becoming the Soviet Union, was probably the closest to the doctrinal version of socialism. So uh, interested to see this upcoming book. We do have another book that we're referencing uh, that's already been published by Trotsky that we're using in our materials. So we'll share that link when we come to it. Uh, and the last one that I added, because uh, I just got the email from it, I'm subscribed to Emissions, which is a Substack newsletter uh, from Michael Grunwald. You might recognize him as the author of The New New Deal. Ever since doing that, uh, actually, even prior to that, I think that Michael's first book was on the wetlands in Florida. Um, so he's he's kind of more of an environmental writer and reporter than even a political reporter, but he spent time at Politico, which is when he did New New Deal. Since then, he's gone on to basically just craft uh, environmental pieces and writes for a number of different places, but he has his own st sub stack and I've, I've left a link to it as well. So you can subscribe to it if you're interested. But he was just picked up in the New York Times op-ed. Going to give you just one brief excerpt so you know what, what it's about. Super interesting as we continue to talk about climate change, talk about land use, and talk about the future uh, of trying to beat back the IPP, IPCC targets. Quote, I'm obsessed with the global land crunch because by 2050, the world is going to need to produce way more food with significantly less land. Biofuels are a fake solution to the fossil fuel problem that can make the food and land problem much harder to solve. The world now uses a landmass larger than California to grow less than 4% of our transportation fuel. We need that land to grow food or store carbon. Instead, land is really good at growing food and storing carbon, but it sucks at growing energy. And fortunately, we have better ways to grow energy. So I think this kind of dovetails into the whole conversation that we'll be continuing to have over the years about the best path forward against climate change in terms of um, how, do, how do we feed the planet, but also how do we move people around? There's a lot of different ways for us to attack this angle, but land use, I think, is probably one of the smartest ways to do it. I think Grunwald is a really, really good writer. Um, you know, he's a, he's a really keen mind, so he's probably going to be a great resource for us. But uh, the idea that he makes a point in the article that the amount of acreage required to build a solar farm usually comes under attack. But the amount of energy that's produced by that solar farm, it requires up to like 10 or 20 times more land to get the same output from biofuels. So in equating all these different ways of looking at it, there's more efficient ways to generate energy for the, for, for the planet and for the growing population. But, you know, in, in our I think this is why the South American elections were so important, why it was important for Lula to be reinstated back in Brazil so that we can protect the, the Amazon. We cannot keep chopping back. Uh, we, we, we have to focus on biodiversity and we can't keep chopping back productive land for monocultures, especially if it's going to go for fuel production, because uh, it might be it might be rewarding, financially rewarding for certain countries to do that. But it's literally the most inefficient thing that we can do. So check out Michael Grunwald's piece. In the Times, subscribe to a Substack if you get a chance. It's called The Missions, and I left a link to it. And with that, let's get into emails. Mm, why don't we start with Dan H., and then I'll go back to Bobby. So Dan H. said, great episode this week, keeping us updated on the potential Supreme Court fuckery that may strip Native nations of their sovereignty. 
the eraser of a people might take one more step in the wrong direction. Ugh. So anyway, in more enjoyable news, I found a new podcast that I wanted to recommend, um, but it also prompted a question that I thought you'd find interesting. Jeremy Greer is the co-executive director of Liberation in a Generation, LibGen, and was the guest on last week's Pitchfork Economics. Pitchfork Economics, I can say it. (laughs) Um, Can the economy be liberated? LibGen is well aligned with UNFTR, and they also host a podcast called Racism is Profitable. Something I found interesting that I thought was worthy of an email is that the socioeconomic themes LibGem works on are similar to UNFTR or Pitchfork. Like the wealthy and powerful and using their resources to continue a system of oppression over everyday folks, but LibGen takes an explicitly race-based lens through which they view the conflict. It was fascinating hearing Nick and Goldie talk about inclusive economic growth, and then Jeremy would say yes and, then add in the historical racism component that's often left out of our stories of economic inequity. I know you all have done explicit episodes about racism and socioeconomic oppression. I got a Starbucks push notification at the same time. Um, (laughs) So I'm a hypocrite for not muting my notifications, which led me to not know how to work uh, work my mouth. So um, I know you all have done explicit episodes about racism and socioeconomic oppression, but I'm curious how you feel about LibGen's approach of framing the owner class as primarily exploiting people of color and immigrants versus just exploiting poor and lower class people in general were proportionately more likely to be POC. So the podcast Racism is Profitable is not made for someone who looks like me. The hosts state this at the beginning of each episode that it's made by and for folks of color. And I often find myself thinking, well, that just that doesn't ha- just happen to black people as I listen to their points. But I also recognize that black people in the U.S. are arguably the farthest away from socioeconomic justice compared to their peers. Maybe we should be focusing our messaging around folks of color and specifically black Americans rather than just the have-nots in a general sense. Or could that type of messaging alienate the people we ultimately need in our coalition to make change happen because they will have a similar reaction to me and think, hey, I'm struggling too. It's not just the black community. So I know that was a long one, but I thought it was a good thought-provoking yeah, discussion. It is. It, and it's it's multifaceted in a, in a really good way. So again, zoom out for one second. When we talk about building a general systems theory for the future of how we can actually operate the planet efficiently and humanely without continuing to cook the planet and let allow, you know, people die from starvation and hunger and, and, and abject poverty. One of the things that has been occurring to me along the way in researching I, I would say old modalities, you know, the the isms that have gotten us to this point, whether they unfolded the way they were intended or, you know, even in the just the most theoretical sense, is that a lot of it is set as a class struggle. And that might not be the most useful lens. For example, when we came into the 20th century, you you, you had people like Dewey and Keynes and Schumpeter that we're talking about the evolution of the service class versus the traditional working class and and wondering out loud and thinking out loud and theorizing about how this was going to affect class struggle. Because we usually have kind of a, when we think about it in a theoretical sense, we have kind of this bifurcated lens that it is the wealthy class and then it is just strictly tradespeople. And that's not the global economy. That's not how it's evolved. There is definitely a labor economy and a labor class related to that economy, but the service class is also largely poor or lower middle class. So 
how do these systems incorporate people like that as well that don't necessarily need to expend their physical labor in the production of uh, in the production and value chain of the economy? So that's been an evolution of thought. It's also what prevented Marx's theories from ever fully coming to fruition, because what Marx envisioned was a manufacturing class globally that would rise up to overtake the capitalist state and get to a place where the state would wither away. That was the utopian socialist vision was that this state would simply wither away. There really wasn't much of a definition beyond that. And we'll cover a little bit, but we've also touched on that before. So, but that idea is also anachronistic because each economy is vastly different. So the U.S. is one of the, is probably the most mature and diverse economy that has ever existed. We have production, we have labor, we have natural resources, we have capital in all forms. So we have the ability to almost like, we have the ability to drive the international economy and be producers and consumers. And that's a very rare thing. So you have other parts of the world that are very good at producing things or they're very good at consuming things, but they're more, uh, they're less diverse than the type of economy that we have. So they have a different labor class structure that doesn't often align with what we have here. Capitalism has gone in to, you know, dissect the economies even further and, you know, mint certain economies that are useful at a time, for a time, and then to also smash economies that are, maybe the labor is useful, but the natural resources aren't or vice versa. So it's, it's not as, it's way more layered than it was before. What I appreciate about the approach that you're talking about, Dan, is that we need to be talking about, the, I, I guess, the ethnic and, and racial dynamics of the economy, because if you look at the North versus the global South, there is definitely a component of racism in terms of the abuse that we, you know, the, uh, the abusive fashion that we have uh, treated those economies. There's just really no way around it. You have incredibly rich and diverse economies or natural resources in these areas in the global South that developed at different times than we did. And again, that's also part of the isms journey that we're gonna go on. You know, you have you have incredibly rich natural resources in uh, certain African countries and a, and a willing and able, able and, and trained labor pool but capitalism has gone in to completely suppress their economic instincts and their ability to grow. Same thing in South America. So if you look at it from a global North to a global South through, through that lens, there's a racial component that just that simply can't be ignored. In our country specifically, if we wanna look through that lens, there's just no question that the, the power structure is still set up along racial lines. You know, race being an artificial construct, but in practical terms, a very real one from an oppressor to the oppressed. So I think it's, you know, it's like ask, you can't ask people that have this, that are offering this into the general, you know, ecosystem of, of information to say, maybe you should widen your lens because their perspective is really important and it's helping the rest of us see things a little bit differently. So it's like our economics of racism episode, but on steroids. And I think it is always good to bring that historical perspective from that specific area into it. 
just as it's important to bring that uh, from a feminist lens. So it's not going to always be that, but it should always be in terms of power dynamics. And who's the listener that we have that was insistent throughout that we should always explain things through the lens of power dynamics? Because that's really what they're advocating for. It's like, stop talking so much about the, the racial aspect and the feminist aspect. And, you know, it, yes, I remember, but right, I, don't, I don't remember the name off the top of my head. Basically saying that you'll connect with more people by explaining everything through. You'll get your point across that all of those things are accurate, but it's always within a power dynamic. And then we can begin to, like, strip away what we kind of what we see and what we bring in our biases that we bring to the table by talking about the power dynamics first and foremost and then plugging in that historical perspective. So it's kind of like it's it's a shift in philosophy that's driving at the same type of thing. Uh, you know, but as we've talked about before, like, but you still have to explain these dynamics in order to understand even that there is, that it is about a power structure and a power dynamic. And essentially who holds the capital, who holds the purse strings and who holds the political power, which is really what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember that email a little differently. I think it was more stop talking about racism and just talk about things. <laughs> so, so you know, a little different from my memory, but... Well, I took it as you'll connect with more people in your clearly white audience by, if you don't speak down to them about racism and talk more about power dynamics and you're able to introduce racism through that lens. Yeah, no, like I know. Something like that? It was, yeah, I, that wasn't, that was just a sidebar. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I fought, fell on the same kind of place as you. Um, without all the <laughs> the isms context, but I don't think we can ever ask like this is a podcast by black people, and you're you know I don't think that Dan is saying like they should stop talking like they should stop yeah. this oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't mean that, that I don't mean to put words in Dan's mouth, and so that's not what I'm saying. But like obviously they're going to talk about that, and you know a podcast about feminism is going to talk about that, and a podcast about indigenous rights is going to talk about their economic stifling by everything we've ever done. Mm -hmm. That's where I feel like where we are, we try to talk about all of it when we can. So I feel like we're not going to change our framing. And I don't, I, it's it's a meet, meet people where they are perspective mm -hmm. of like, yeah, we want to explain the issues to people. And then, you know, then they move on to a, you know, some, the ideal. Lib Gen. It's racism is profitable. Oh, right. yeah, so like they're... the ideal track would be like, hey, they found us and they listen to economics of racism and they're like, wow, like I didn't know about that. And then they go to subscribe to something like mm -hmm. racism is profitable or they go subscribe to Let's Talk Native. So like, you know, I think we have a good launch pad for those ideas. And it's why we can't always get to everything. And we try to cover as many things that are appropriate as possible. But thankfully, we do have other people doing the work of specific causes or I mean calling racism a cause sounds like pejorative like one of your little causes right. but you know what I mean but a significant lens for yeah sure. yeah so one that can't be ignored so but I, I Dan I think it's I think it's natural I mean I, I definitely especially in our like the Grand Alliance episode yep, yep. but like there were definitely times in there where there were things where I'd be like well this actually you know happened to Jews but I, I felt that way too you know sometimes I think you have that natural like hey and then you go, wait, let me think. So I think there's a normal like self-preservation or like wanting to be relevant or, you know, not in a bad way of, or just like relating. Hey, this also happened to me. But then the, you know, progressive person in you clearly goes, wait a second. That's, that's not, not unique to your class. Yeah, it's not, my, it's not a cool thought to have or something. So 
what I'm trying to figure out as we go through, again, t- you know, pairing up the the old systems to what the new systems could be is, is the idea of class. Because it typically... You want like, a, it, like it, a caste system, right? Yeah, caste would be so much more efficient. Everybody just knows where they stand, yeah. right? And then we could, I mean, we could do it by shade, right? <laughs> I can't, no? I, I can't even, it's too much. Um, <laughs> too edgelord. The idea of class... And kind of wrapping our minds around what that looks like in a new systems theory. A productive class that's part of the economy. Again, how do you how do you value somebody's contribution to it? What does working class even mean? Like I've been actually struggling over the last several months to even write the working class because I'm not even sure that that's a really good moniker anymore. You'll hear Marxists use it a lot. Uh, you'll hear, you know, Rick Wolf use it a lot talking about the working class, but it's like, to me, that kind of invokes something a little bit different and anachronistic that talks about like an older society, but you, you don't want to say like, oh, I'm part of the service class. I and that's why elitist. my mind is kind of going to like, I think we have to eliminate the idea of class in these discussions or just come up with a better framework for it. And I don't have the vocabulary yet, if yeah. that makes sense. I mean, it's the obvious class is elitism. So even the intellectuals writing about it are sort of sort, kind of talking down because they're the intellectual class, right. not the working class. Right. So what does it mean to be, you know, blue collar, white collar, all of those right. dichotomies? I don't I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. And the, and the problem with assigning these type of labels is that it automatically invokes whatever your pre, you know, judgment is about that type of label. So when you talk about like, oh, the working class or, or, or laborers, like right away, you bring your own personal biases to it instead of us like ha- coming up with kind of a better language for, for where people exist in a society and economically wh- how we want people to thrive, how we want their contributions valued, and then who should be taken care of. And everyone like should have to wear posted on their head with their bank balance. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. Mine yesterday would have been like negative 63 cents. Uh, when's payday? <laughs> Tomorrow. Tomorrow? Okay. All right. There you go. Um, so, you know, I don't think I would be placed highly in the class <laughs> system. See, now, the Very reason Black I think that that's slightly misleading is that uh, I would have a positive note. But if you talked about assets, you know, what's your net worth? Then I'd have a negative net worth because of all my debt. Oh, my net worth. Yeah. Right. You think that my my bank balance isn't the only thing that'd be negative. Right. I have no assets. I don't right. even have my own car. I lease it. You lease that thing? Oh, yeah. You do? I don't believe in buying cars. She's a Ferrari, so I absolutely do. about this. I don't. I just don't By believe. Way, it's vintage and I don't even know where you lease a vintage Ferrari. Vintage so. R.S. Hmm. Yeah, that's why my bank balance was negative. My $6,000 oh. payment, you know, it hit and I was like, fuck. Bi-weekly, right? Yeah, of yes. course. I don't believe in buying cars. I want a new car every three years. Really? Go sell my old one. And that way I don't have to deal with the maintenance. Sorry, car culture people. Just kidding. I mean, not kidding. I own my car. Is it worse for the environment that I keep leasing them? Someone's buying them, right? Oh, God, I'm getting canceled. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I just, know who does know. Dan H., Dan H. Is it Dan H? Or Dan M. We have like 18 Dans. We're going to have to give you all nicknames. Car Dan. Car Dan. Auto Dan. Yeah. Auto Dan knows. I think, what happened to Derek R? Auto Dan just wants us all the fuck off the roads. Derek R. He loved car stuff too. He was, I think, the first one to mention it. Was he the first car fucker? I think so. Okay. I don't like that. Auto fucker? Because it makes me think they're putting their dicks in the tailpipe. Hmm. Tell me your mind doesn't go there. 
It didn't, but now it all, only will. So, I autofucker? Mean, Is that... No, they're... Transfer fucker? Mm. Right away, <laughs> demonetized. <laughs> yeah. you. I think you got into Joe Rogan territory for a second. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, tell me if that's bad, and I probably still won't buy my car because I don't have the money for it to the maintenance. I'm the annoying person that drives um, the same car for 10 years, and um, can I tell them what kind of car it is? I think you can. It makes people... It's so funny, the reaction that people... Today, a family member texted me to make fun of my car. I think we should not tell them and ask people to guess. What kind of car do you think I drive? And you can guess my car, too. I guarantee you won't get it. No, there's no way. I didn't pick it. Like, I didn't pick... They might swap us, though. Yeah. Right? I want yours, but it's too expensive. Yeah. Do you Uh, want mine? You gotta have it for a decade or more. I know, but what am I supposed to put down? The negative 63 cents? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think... They're very creative in finance Do you think my car guy, Sammy, will take it? Sammy's been helping me for five years. Sammy? Sammy. Yeah, Sammy will work out a deal for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not what he sounds like. No? That's what he should sound like. I know. Right? I think it's a nickname. Shammy. I know a guy from Brooklyn who just keeps and and really goes like way too heavy on his, you know, his... Is it Bobby from Brooklyn? It's not Bobby. It's another guy who just everything is dish. Everything is dish. There's somebody in his life who's got, you know, who's a sham. And so everything is shammy dish and shammy that. It's like, "Mm, I just don't think that's natural. That's how my grandpa's boyfriend used to speak, or still does. Your grandpa's boyfriend? Sorry, did, that's, I, did I say that's that? That's pretty woke for that generation. <laughs> my gra- cool. Did I say grandpa? You did, yeah. Grandma's awesome. boyfriend. <laughs> Common law husband. Hey, Bobby McDee wrote in, I think your podcast is killing my soul, but the episode on the native adoption cases made me quite despondent. Oh, I got a note from John Kane. I thought he was going to send us a voice memo, but I got to bring that up too. <laughs> did he yell at you? Yep. Oh no. Yeah, not badly though. Uh, he's more yelling at the, uh, you know, screaming, yelling at the rain. Okay. Maybe it's because being Irish, I house within my bones a vestige of the historical trauma inflicted upon us by the British. In 1847, I love these history lessons from him. We also got shafted by the yeah. British, Bobby. How about us too? Yeah. Nobody ever thinks about the United States. No, we're always the victim. <laughs> we're never the Ay-ay-ay. villain. In 1847, during the Irish Genocide, more euphemistically known as the Irish Famine, the Choctaw people sent $170 to help alleviate the suffering of those starving to death, despite there being plenty of food. A kindness, if ever there was one, but small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. I won't labor the historical point as to why the Irish Famine was a genocide, but look it up. The British stood by while the Irish peasantry starved. In fact, a particularly insidious cruelty the British administrator of the relief effort, Charles Trevelyan, thought building roads that went nowhere would keep people focused on work rather than food. Sound familiar? The British were quite happy to stand by as natural disaster did the dirty work of rooting out the Irish language and culture and all that went with it. The indigenous population fell from 8 million to 6 million in a decade. A million people died while a further million uh, emigrated mostly to the United States. That history as terrible as this has repeated itself or rhymed and is doing so again in the supposed greatest nation on earth, which is exactly what Britain would have thought about itself in the 1840s, point, is further testament to perhaps the truest thing that can ever be said about humanity. Homi homini lupus est. He does that. He just dips into Latin every once in a while. It's like, hmm, man is a wolf to man. 
I hope Gorsuch can shed his wolf skin for a moment and convince Barrett to side with him and the liberal justices. Here, here. I didn't know that about the potato famine. Uh, I didn't know it to such specificity. He's the best. I love Bobby. Uh, will you read one while I look up John Kane's hmm, angry message to me? We are, I'm going to, I'll jump way to the bottom and do coffee donations. How's that? We'll do something a little wild. I love that. Because it's shorter. Okay. So Brian V is now a member. And Brian said, it's time to up my membership to the next level. This is by far my favorite podcast. So I'm adding a little more support. Thank you. You're making a huge difference in the level of education and understanding of folks like myself who are precisely looking for this depth of information from this point of view. Keep it coming, my friends. And now we can because of Brian. I was going to say Bobby, but then I, it was Brian. I think I'm not okay. <laughs> there's something Today? wrong with me. Yeah. Oh, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. I either Do you think too, it's manifesting today? Too much coffee, not enough coffee. I'm talking really fast mm. and it's hot in here again. It's not as hot as it was though. No, but oh it's, my it's starting to heat up. The landlord fixed the AC, so. <laughs> Slumlord, you mean? Yeah. Uh, here's John Kane's feedback. If you're not subscribed to Let's Talk Native, do it. But you're interested in indigenous issues, you have to subscribe to it. It's podcast. illegal if you don't. My problem with ICWA is that it does not recognize our sovereignty. See, the, I'll just go on. <laughs> it recognizes the value of our distinct culture. But if it really recognized our sovereignty, Congress would have done more than put up guardrails for the states. It would have taken placement out of the state's hands and placed it in ours. Kavanaugh is a dick. His wrong race comment is classic white supremacy refusing to acknowledge any value for a distinct culture. White folks invented race for the sole purpose of advancing themselves as racially superior. I am not a race. I am part of a people, not a nation, not a tribe, not a race. Culture defines us, not race, skin color, or DNA. And please, the plenary powers doctrine is completely born out of the U.S. Commerce Clause, and says that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among several states and with the Indian tribes. It doesn't even say of Indian tribes. In fact, it says nothing about Congress having plenary powers over all things, quote, Indian. Deducing plenary powers from this is like saying Congress has power all over all foreign nations. Uh, so let me just stop there quickly. Uh, the deduction there. It's not even a deduction. It's just explicit that, that uh, part of the argument that they had to address because it's actually part of the, the plaintiff's case uh, is talking about plenary powers. And with respect to that, the plenary powers in terms of commerce is nation to nation. So they're in, at, at least in that it presupposes that the Indian nations themselves are sovereign nations. So I'm not sure. It's not saying that they have power over it. They have power to negotiate, in this case, it would be treaties. Well, in any case, it would be treaties, but it would be trade agreements. It would be whatever type of agreements they have. I don't think that uh, anyone was saying that the plenary powers are specific power over it, with uh, you know, except to say that they have the whatever. Uh, the fact that we have to argue that Congress has authority over us is just pathetic. U.S. Constitution claims no authority over us. It didn't even enumerate for us any representation in their government. A strict reading of the Constitution leaves our absolute sovereignty intact. The biggest risk the Burkine case represents is this court determining that we are all just non-white U.S. citizens. It's a great point. Just tiny, indistinguishable race of Americans. He goes on in a subsequent test. I'm not saying ICWA didn't help stop the flow of children to residential schools and white families, but it failed to give us ultimate say 
over our own children. The states and the white courts still had held that. So I do not disagree with that premise, obviously. You know, ICWA to me is a is a mostly is a band-aid that that stopped the bleeding, but it does stop short of rec- recognizing complete authority and autonomy and sovereignty. What doesn't make it such a clean analysis is that of the 574 tribes, tribal areas, how many of them are able to be, so it's a question of timing. How many of them would actually be able to manage their, fully manage their own services? And the answer is probably not a whole bunch of them, which is why they have contracts with state services and the complication here is that we, we're talking about multiple territories within a large territory. So uh, it, it's on, and, and and that's the that's the point of having like these open air prison systems of reservations that are within a larger geography. They, how do you establish trade? How do you have your own currency? How do you have your own passports? Even you know we, the roads that traverse through them and all the things that have been done that brought us to this point can't simply be unwound to say, okay, everyone's on their own independently. We're not even gonna, we're not even gonna do anything with you, right? We're gonna tear up all the roads. We're gonna tear up everything. So to, again, to me, it's, to me, John, it's timing. And we have to deal with the circumstances that are being dealt with us right now because this case is here and it's now. At a minimum, we have to protect ICWA, at a minimum. But we do have to press going forward for better relationships. It's why one of the very first episodes that that we did was actually talking about how reparations could occur in the United States first with indigenous tribes to make sure that it's as a proving ground for reparations, but also to say that this money belongs, this compensation belongs there so that they can, the the individual tribes through self-governance, self-determination can begin to build their own infrastructures instead of having the kind of the rapacious attitude that we have towards them of like, we'll give you something, but we need 10 things back. So, you know, obviously it's complicated. I know you're not making the claim that like, you know, this case should be thrown out entirely. And you do acknowledge that ICWA was at least better than the residential school practice. But it is, I think, always important to bring the native perspective forward when we talk about these issues that even the language, the wording, the case, and the defense kind of overlooks the the entire concept of sovereignty because none of these questions and none of these cases would be appearing, like I said at the end of the episode, if you just take Navajo and put Japan in, France, Ethiopia, Syria, doesn't matter. Insert any other country name and the and having this discussion, having this court case, and actually having ramifications would be preposterous. It wouldn't happen. But we can't seem to get there because of all the complexities in the relationships. Anyway, appreciate you as always, John. Thank you for sending that in. Isla V said, I've been a follower of your show since 2020 when Best of the Left recommended and appreciate the great work done. Historical connections are so important to understanding our current state. Wondering if you can do a deep dive into anti-LGBTQ legislation and connection to privacy and civil rights and human rights, especially given the current events. So we are overdue on following up on an LGBTQ episode for sure. Jumping into YouTube, Jeremy said, as an unwilling Floridian, I'll spend a little bit of effort on Cornell's behalf. Knowing, of course, President Biden will have my vote. That being said, the one frustration I have with the intellectual powerhouses like Mr. West, Dr. West, is that they have trouble building momentum through compromise. 
Don't get me wrong, the People's Party platform lines up with my desires just about perfectly. It doesn't just line up with political reality, yet our system will, for the foreseeable future, require candidates that can work and deal within existing systems. This means folks like Biden. You could look at several of Biden's accomplishments and see them as falling short of ideal, or you could look at them and see the steps in the right direction of momentum building. Hopefully that momentum will make room in the larger electorate for some true champions like Cornell West. I think that is the hope, and I think that what I've been saying and the, the stance that we have is that, yes, we have made more progressive progress under Joe Biden than we have under any of the under any president. You can track all the way back to Lyndon Johnson. And yet it's still not enough because we know the existential threats and crises that we're facing. And hopefully we will make some room for people like Cornell West. But my argument has also been that it will not be through platforms outside of the duopoly that we need to overthrow the Democratic Party. Now, on that, Red Death said, there's not one progressive currently in Congress that will do the things necessary to even come close to a hostile takeover of the party. That, my friend, is a pipe dream. I'm not saying any third party candidate will either, but it's better than the nothing that we have right now. And Red Death, I see it exactly the opposite, that the more expeditious path would be to take it over. Because again, people forget, we had a handful of progressives. Now we have close to 100. What we really need is about 300, but we're on our way. Whereas a third party that can't even get balloted in a state or raise enough money to even get candidates to a place where they could pass, where they could win and then help us pass campaign finance reform. You know, I, I would say that, that what we have right now is a lot better than following the pipe dream of a third party. Uh, so that's that. Other than... We already went through coffee donations. Is there anything left for us to do? What else can I light a match to today? Um, I don't know. Your hair will probably go up pretty quickly with all that shit in it. A lot of shit in my hair. A lot of shit in my hair. And I'm growing it out. So there's even more shit. Oh, no. To keep We're getting into summer mullet season. It's that time. It's that time. Max turns into a 15-year-old hockey player in the summer. So, oh, yeah. Well, that's the notice there. The battery just ran out on the camera because I don't have my continuous charger yet. Continuous My stomach just growled. So that's, well, there's just so many notices and signs, right? Camera's out, your stomach's rumbling. I know, I didn't eat today, I forgot. Must be time to go. Anything else? We good? Bye. Peace out. Stop winking. Mm -hmm.